You ready? Amen, amen. Some of you are like, I'm so excited. I can't believe we're finally doing it. Glory to God. If you would, stand with me, please. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation. Hallelujah. The first lesson I'd like to teach you is it is not the book of Revelations. It is the book of Revelation. Hallelujah. Very important. You know, some people, I don't know, maybe they feel like they sound spiritual saying the book of Revelations, but it is not the book of Revelations. It is the book of Revelation. Hallelujah. I have to emphasize that because I had an instructor this last year in Bible college, and as we were going through the book of Revelation, he made it clear time and time again, it is not the book of Revelations. Hallelujah. So I just am, you know, passing on some information that I received. Amen. Praise the Lord. The book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 through 3 will begin there and it says this, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Father, thank you for these beautiful reminders that we had during our time of singing and worship this morning, God, that you are a faithful God who has made a place for us, and to you we can run, Lord. And so, Lord, as we enter into this study in the book of Revelation, may your spirit speak clearly. I pray, God, for myself that I would be attuned to your voice and that I would convey clearly truths that in some points are difficult to convey and that your people would hear and understand. But God, more than anything, that our faith would be built stronger in you. And may you be glorified in this. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so we are actually going to cover the entire chapter of uh, uh, chapter one in the book of Revelation today, but we wanted to just start off here looking at these first three verses. And what I want to say on the front end of this is that verse three should tell us something, right? I remember, you know, being younger in my faith and hearing people talk about the book of Revelation and they were scared. Oh my goodness, I don't even touch that book. And I'm like... I don't, I don't get it. Like, I, I don't understand why you don't touch the book. I can understand saying it's a hard book to understand, right? Like, I, I get that 100%. But saying that I'm afraid of a book, I mean, it's your daddy wrote this to you, right? Like, you shouldn't be afraid of a book. And the point is that not only should you not be fearful of the book, but you should also realize that there is a blessing, blessing. He said, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. And so there is a blessing, and I pray that as we walk through this book that we will experience that blessing, that encouragement, that 
charge that God gives us. And so the reason why we're in this study in the book of Revelation is because for a long time, I mean, I've talked about, you know, here and there, little parts, and I've even preached to the first, you know, um, seven churches in Revelation, but never really dug deep and walked through this. And some years ago, I did a study on end times, and we walked through the book of Daniel, and we walked through the gospels and the different um, discourses that Jesus has there. And I talked about the rapture and, you know, talked about, you know, my position on that. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And for years, people have been like, Bishop, you got to do this again. And I'm like, ah, you know. And so it wasn't because I don't care about that, but it's, it's just like that. I wasn't stirred that way. But because I'm looking at the times in which we're living, I think that it is important that we realize that there should be no question that we are living in the end times. But I want you to know the end times began a long time ago. So, so don't, don't, but what, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to hear me say that and then go to sleep and be like, ah, it doesn't matter. We've been hearing end times for a long time. No, because that's the problem with people is that we think because Jesus hasn't returned yet because we haven't seen all of these things fulfilled. Ah, really? Yeah. Jesus is coming. Yeah. Right. Like we, we don't believe these things. Right. And so it is important for us that when we look at what Paul, what, what um, John is writing, that we realize that God is speaking, and he wants his church to know even uh, around, and you saw up there, 95 AD, I mean, that's a long time ago, almost 2,000 years ago, that God get inspired these words to the Apostle John for us. Revelation is a book that is specific to the end times, and so I'm going to have to teach because you can't just preach Revelation. You got to teach through it, so you know, you're going to hear some teaching. I, I, I may be a little slower than normal, or I may be faster than normal. I don't know, but either way, we're going to going to teach some stuff here. And if you look at the genre of what Revelation is, it, it is it is an apocalyptic prophetic book, right? Apocalyptic. When people think of apocalyptic, simply it means, right, it means unveiling, you know? You're going to hear somebody's going to speak. I'm not going to tell you who, but you'll know when they get up here. But they're going to talk about one of the churches, and they're going to compare it to, like, the zombie apocalypse. Hello. <laughs> and so you hear this word apocalypse, and all of a sudden there's some thoughts or ideas that are conjured up in your head. But the fact is the word apocalypse simply means unveiling. It is an unveiling is what is happening in the book of Revelation. But when people think of apocalyptic literature, they're thinking of something that is poetic and hyperbolic, right? And you're going to see that even in chapter 1, that there is some poetry, but there is, you're going to see the hyperbole. You're going to see the, the picture that is being drawn by the apostle John as he's describing the vision that he has of Jesus Christ right in the beginning of this book. And, and, and prophetic because it is twofold prophetic. So when you think of prophetic, I want you to realize this. Prophetic, when you think of something being prophetic, it is not solely foretelling events because we automatically think prophetic. At least I know I do. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think prophetic is that someone is foretelling something in the future, right? That's what I think about. But being prophetic is not just foretelling, but it is also foretelling. It is proclaiming God's word. And what you'll see through this is that God is not speaking solely abstractly about things that will happen in the future, but he is also speaking to the people in a practical way, calling the church in particular that he's, that he's writing to, to what? To repentance, to faith, to trust, that as you go through tribulation and hardship, you should be believing and trusting in and focusing in on your Lord and your Savior. 
This book was written, again, to a specific audience, and it's so very important. We always talk about context, context, context. Context is king to understanding any book of the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation, because you have to realize that there was an audience that was getting this message, that was hearing this directly from, not from the Apostle John's lips, because these were letters that were written and that were sent to these churches. Nonetheless, this was a message that was to them. These seven churches were in Asia Minor. We'll see a map in a little while, but just you can kind of see where they were. And, 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 th- and in this, right, because this church, this was written such a long time ago, there are a few interpretations, a few ways to interpret the book of Revelation. So I don't want to get really deep into the weeds on this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post in Realm, and I'll send you guys an email with a link to a, a video that's about an hour and 29 minutes. And um, Pastor Mike Winger, who you guys may know, he's, he's come here. For those of you that were here when he, he came to our anniversary a few years ago, I think he's a great Bible teacher very thoughtful. He really digs into the text, and he kind of breaks these um, apart a little bit more than me. I think he has six positions on end times or something like that. But nonetheless, when you break them down and you look at the different positions on end times, and these are these are going to be some you know big words for you, but you know just embrace them. Hallelujah. Go tell someone tomorrow one of the big words you learned or what position you might hold, and maybe it sparks a good conversation, right? But all this said, okay, so there's there's one position, right? And I think that this one is probably one of the most popular positions. It is the premillennial view. So there's these different views, right? The premillennial view, meaning that it is a futurist looking at the book of Revelation. And so what the premillennial believes is that the, uh, the, the book of Revelation, some of it has already happened, right? Some of the things have occurred. Obviously, the, the seven churches, that has occurred. There are some things you can look at in history that may have occurred, but ultimately, you're looking for a future thousand-year literal reign of Christ, right? That's what a pre-millennial person is, right? Most of you are like, oh, okay, yeah, I believe that. I'm looking for a thousand years for Christ to reign, and then there'll be a, a, another, uh, you know, big wars and stuff like that that will occur, and then new heavens and new earth, right? So that's the premillennial futurist position. Uh, and, and in the premillennial position, there there is typically an, an, an embracing of the rapture. And so there is a different belief, though. Premillennials don't all believe the same thing on the rapture because you have some premillennials that they believe the rapture is before the seven years of tribulation that we see that starts right after chapter 4 in the book of Revelation, or they believe that it's in the middle, right? Some of them believe in the middle. They're still looking for the rain and, you know, the millennial rain. And then there's others, you know, that may have a different, you know, idea. I think I'm one of those others, right? I, I, don't, I don't necessarily fall. I definitely don't fall in the beginning of the rapture. Sure, and you'll see why in a moment. Uh, and I don't fall. And for those of you that are coming to the Core Faith 101 later, uh, you'll you'll see. A, we can talk about it a little bit more. But I don't fall either in the middle because if I fall directly in the middle, then that means that I kind of like measure when Jesus is coming. I think the scriptures teach that no man will know, right? We'll know the seasons, but not the exact time. So anyway, so that's the pre-millennial position. Then you have what is called a post-millennial position. So post-millennial, they are more of a uh, preterist, meaning that it is it is past. So when they read the book of Revelation, they read it, they're like, yeah, they kind of look at stuff. They think the temple destruction in 70 AD, like that was when all of these things pretty much occurred. They they think in, in terms of the millennial, uh, um, Christianizing the world until Christ establishes his kingdom. So really what's happening right now is we are in the millennium right now. 
And so Christ is reigning, right, from on high, and we, his church, are called to bring in the kingdom of God and until Christ comes and ultimately reigns, right? And I want to just pause real quick because, to me, the reason why it's so difficult to, like, just pigeonhole me in one of these is because I believe truth in all of these except for one, and you'll know which one it is. But the, 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 the post-millennial is typically, you know, if they think of a rapture, it's going to be after the tribulation period. Jesus is going to come, meet him in the air, and then, you know, rain and all that. And so that's kind of their role. That's, that's kind of their position. And then there is the amillennial view, which they are the idealist, right? They're, they're the person that mostly is, is more, more, more than anything, everything we see in Revelation, Christ reigning, that's all heavenly. It's really, it's really heavenly. It's not really a, an actual thing that's going to happen on the earth, the primary focus, spreading the gospel. You believe in that, right? And spreading the gospel, right? You believe in, I, I believe in spreading the gospel. I think we've got to spread that. That's our call. I also think that we need to bring in the kingdom of God, right, until Jesus returns. Like, that's what I think the scriptures teach. But I also believe in an actual thousand-year reign of Christ. I'm just saying. I'm just letting you know what I think. So I know you're confused already. Amen. So here's the one that I don't believe in at all, that I don't hold to in any way, shape, or form. And it is the hyper-preterist view. Whenever you have a, a the, the, the post-millennial view, the, the, the hyper-preterist is, you're always going to get somebody that's going to be super hyper, right? And, and not just hyper like their energy level, but they're just like over the top. And what they believe, the hyper-preterist believe, is that everything in the book of Revelation has already happened. There's nothing left to occur. It's all already done. This is not a Christian view, right? And there's one other one that I didn't really that I, I didn't write in my notes here, but I think it's important to notice because in the beginning of the Reformation, most of the people would, would hold a position of a historical position. And what they did and what historicists do typically, and now presently, you know, according to, and I'm, I'm going to take this with Pastor Mike, I'll take his word for it, is the seven-day Adventists hold to a historical view of end times. And what they do is they always try to take historical events and read them into the text. So they take newspaper clippings, things that occurred, and then they're like, hey, this is this person, this is who the Antichrist was. And so Martin Luther, for example, he's the one, and some of you may have heard this, I, I, I just asked you to raise your hand if you ever did you ever hear that the pope was potentially the antichrist raise your hand if you ever heard that okay that came from a historical view of revelation because martin luther believed and popularized that the catholic church was you know all of these different things that you see in the book of revelation and the fact is most people don't hold this historical view of the book of revelation now because what they do is this. As history moves forward, they realize, well, Christ didn't return yet, so we got to adjust our interpretation. And so they keep adjusting their interpretation because they're trying to move it toward Christ is coming now, and he hasn't come yet. It's a bad view to have. Nonetheless, what do I hold to? Let me tell you what I hold to. If I had to tell you this, you already know. I hold to a premillennial position, so I'm a futurist, right? I, and this is the way, why does this matter? Because I'm teaching this, right? So you need to know where I'm standing, what I'm thinking about all of this stuff. And so I hold a futurist interpretation based upon a few things. Jump with me real quick to verse 19 in chapter 1. I just want you to see what Jesus says here. He says this because this is one of the reasons why I hold to a futurist interpretation of the text because I think that this is the outline that you should follow when you are reading through the book of Revelation or studying it out. 
And it is, he says this, write the things which you have seen, so that would be present and past, and the things which are, so that's definitely what is presently going on in that moment, the church that is there, what is happening, and the things which will take place after this. That's a futurist position, right? So three ways to see it, the things that you have seen, the things that you are being that, that are being revealed to you, the things that are presently at that moment when he is right, that's why the context is so important, and then the things which shall be. So that's one of the reasons why I hold to a futurist interpretation. The second reason, because I don't think that history has sufficiently documented much of what we see in the book of Revelation after chapter 4 and that being on a global scale. And so you can pull, pull things out and say, oh, well, Nero was this and the destruction of the temple was that. And you can point to some things that, yeah, maybe partial fulfillment, but not complete fulfillment, right? And that's where I land on this, right? And so uh, Mike Winger, he calls himself a progressive um, premillennial and basically but not progressive in the negative sense like we talked about weeks ago he's just saying that what he holds to he he interprets verse 1 through um, 19 a little bit different than me he thinks it's twofold it's the things that have already happened and the things that will and so we can land there. I mean, that's, you know, kind of similar. But nonetheless, I don't think that. The third reason is because it seems to me, I don't know about you, but it seems to me like Satan isn't bound yet. What do you think? You think Satan is bound? I don't think he's bound yet. <laughs> I hope this is not what it looks like with Satan bound, right? And so I think that he is worried. If he's bound, boy, we in trouble. But nonetheless, I don't, I don't think that Satan has been bound. And it seems clear to me, I don't know about you, but Jesus has not returned. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. Glory to God. So that, that's why I hold a futurist position. But here's what I want you to think about, and this is what I would call the big idea of the message, but I want you to think about this. The book of Revelation reveals Jesus, right? Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation reveals Jesus and calls us to stay focused upon him until the end. When is the end? I don't know. When you breathe your last, that's the end for you. That's for certain. If the trumpet sounds before you breathe your last, the last trumpet sounds that we see in the scriptures, if you breathe your last before that, then that's your last. But if you haven't breathed your last and that last trumpet sound, that's the end. Hallelujah. But what the book of Revelation does and what my hope is that we will see in the text of Scripture exactly what John is trying to convey to the church of Jesus Christ that is present at that moment and that we'll be able to just experience the encouragement, the challenge to our faith, and the calling to stay focused on Christ until the end. If I could make that the big idea every single sermon throughout this series, I would. Because I don't want us to get caught up. I would, as I've shared with, with certain people talking about how I, want, how I want to preach through the book of Revelation, I want to be sure that I'm faithful to the text, but I want to be sure that I'm pointing you to Jesus above everything else. Because the fact is this, is that just like I gave you here, these five, six, you know, I gave you four, but, you know, five, six positions that there are on the way to interpret the book of Revelation, there is much disagreement on a lot of stuff in the middle. I won't get into every single one of them. I may touch on points here and there because I think they're worth discussing. But the one thing that most none of these people disagree on is that Jesus is on the throne. 
And that the church is supposed to be focused on Christ and the mission that Christ has given the church. And so that's why I think it's so important that the book of Revelation, that we understand that it reveals Jesus and calls us to stay focused on him until the end. And so the first thing I would ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, Revelation, Revelation. is about Jesus, about Jesus. For, his people. for his people. Revelation is about Jesus for his people. Again, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, right, which God gave him. So you see God the Father giving Jesus Christ to show to his servants. Are we servants of Jesus today? We are his servants, right? And so immediate servants, the, the church that was alive at that moment, as with any book that we read. So what I want you to know that this is not specific to the book of Revelation. Every single book we read was written to an original audience, right? We always have to keep that in mind because when we're reading the Bible, what we want to automatically do is we ask many times, we ask the wrong question first, right? The first question we ask is, what is God saying to me? That is the wrong question to ask because that is an application question. The question you should be asking is what is God saying? What did God say at that moment, understanding who he was speaking to, and then you're able to do what? Then you're able to embrace the truth that God is bringing forth into your life after you understand what he was saying originally. And so spoke to his servants things which must shortly take place. And so this is where the, his, the historical folks, not hysterical, the historical folks, this is where they get caught up. All these things must take place shortly. Or the, or the post-millennial, right, the preterist, the one who says, yeah, a lot of this stuff has already occurred. They get caught up. Well, what, how do you deal with a text like that? Shortly take place. And I'll, I'll tell you how to deal with it in a moment. But, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So how does this come? The father gives a revelation to Jesus, and Jesus gives a revelation to an angel, and the angel gives a revelation to John, and then John does what? He writes it all down. And then he sends it to the churches, right? Very important for us to follow how God is speaking. Again, revelation means the unveiling. It is the origin of the English word apocalypse, right? Apocalypse is where we get that word from. In this book, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit pulls back the curtain and gives us the privilege of seeing the glorified Christ in heaven and the fulfillment of his sovereign purposes in the world. Let me say that again. The book of Revelation is the Holy Spirit pulling back the curtain and giving us the privilege of seeing the glorified Christ in heaven and the fulfillment of his sovereign purposes in the world. When we're looking at this book, and this is what I want us to do throughout this, is always look up. If there's a lesson you can learn throughout the book of Revelation, it's no matter what is going on on this level, on this plane, no matter what is happening here, look up. If you will look up, you'll be able to walk through it. The problem with us is that we get so caught up with what is going on here, especially in a book like Revelation. We get caught up in this because we're like, oh my goodness, what is going on? What is happening? What? And, and, and we get so overwhelmed there, same thing in our lives. What does God want us to do? Look up. Look up to our Lord. Look up to our Savior. So John goes on to say, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things he saw. So a servant, as servants of Jesus, we should be encouraged by these words that we see, as well as challenged to always be ready for his return. So when you see these words short or the time is near, 
What I understand from this is because obviously, again, I have to interpret scripture by scripture, and I also have to look at what has actually happened, right? I have to look at what has actually occurred. So here's what I know is that God has always communicated to his people, be ready. Be ready. You never know. Listen, if, if, if I take the, the, the preterist idea in, in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, right? And it was easy to believe that like before Israel became a nation again. See, it was real easy to believe that, well, it's done. Israel's not a nation anymore. The temple is destroyed. But when Israel became a nation, wait, 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 wait. Now that, now that throws a different twist on my interpretation of Revelation because it seems like in the book of Revelation, there is actually a dealing with, which there is, the actual blood people Israel, not just us as the Israel by faith, no, 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 but an actual people in the earth that are called Israel that are alive. And so what do we have here? We have to interpret the scriptures this way. We have to look at, okay, this is what God is saying to us. So it could have happened then maybe, but wait a second, there was still some scriptures to be fulfilled. There's plenty of Old Testament prophecy that still deals with Israel. So we have to think about those things to be able to look at this. So as we walk through, does that make sense before I move on? Does that make sense? When we're looking at what, you know, uh, the time is near or the time is short, it, it, it's not necessarily saying, because remember, and, and I'll just throw this in there, right? Peter tells us what? That a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, right? So if we look at, time from that perspective, which we can't even grasp, it's been like two days since Jesus spoke this. Think about that for a moment. It's been like two days, right? Like, so if someone said, hey, man, I'm going to be there shortly, and they're coming from a faraway land, like two days is not a big deal, right? You know the journey's far. Now, you know Jesus can appear at any moment, right? Like, I, that's not the thing here. The point is, when we're looking at this urgency that God is trying to get us to and tell us, hey, man, look up, pay attention to your Savior. So as we walk through the book of Revelation, our heart posture must be correct. So what does he say in verse 3? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words. So reading and hearing the words of this prophecy. But the third thing is what? And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The heart posture we have to have is that we want to apply God's word. We don't just want to hear it. We want to apply it. We want to live it. So here's what I want you to realize is that it is highly unlikely. I know you're going to be upset when I say this, but I got to let you know this up front. It is highly unlikely that we're going to figure out all of the specifics of every symbolism. Listen, I'm not some guru. I'm going to study this book. I'm going to dig into this book. I'm going to read commentaries. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate me. But I promise you, I'm going to come up here and I'm going to say, I don't know what that means. But I know Jesus is on the throne. <laughs> Even though I don't know what that means, Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still worthy of worship. And even though we may not understand every single thing, we know what is clear. We know what is plain. We hear it and we live it. That's important for us. But let me tell you this. That needs to be our heart posture with all of God's word. Not just the book of Revelation. We need to be hearers and doers of the word of God. We need to make sure we're living for the glory of God. The second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me, and my longest point, and you may think your longest point, yes, my longest point is going to be point three. Say this with me. Say, Revelation, Revelation. is through John, through John to seven churches, seven churches. For, all generations. for all generations. Revelation is through John 
to seven churches for all generations. I already asked you, are we the servants of the Lord? Yes, we are. So that means this book is for us. This book is for us to be encouraged. This book is meant to encourage and build our faith. So in a, in a, in a uh, epistolatory way, right, like the writing of an epistle, like the writing of a letter, John greets the seven churches. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, very similar to the way that the apostle Paul would, would greet, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we already all jacked up right now, right? We're already messed up. We're, we, we just went from, okay, we were good with he who is, he who was, he who is to come. We're like, good, we got that Jesus. And now we're talking about seven spirits. Oh my goodness, we done messed up. All right, all right. And from the, I just, I just want to point that out, right? And the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he starts off this greeting. It's just like a regular epistle, right? Like we're just writing a letter and then all of a sudden, he jumps into Jesus is speaking. You never see, like, Jesus speaking through Paul in that, in that sense, right? It's not that way. Jesus is speaking through Paul, like he speaks through me and he speaks through you when God uses you. But we're not writing red letters. Are you here? <laughs> we're not doing that. If you have the right Bible, right, you see that those letters went red on you. You're like, okay, we got seven spirits and then we got red letters. Okay, great. So here's what happens. The seven spirits, what are those? Now, here's what I'm going to say that I understand from that. That is symbolic, right, of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why there is this seven there, you all know the word seven, or the, you know, seven, the number seven, is a number of completion, a number of perfection, Right? And what do you have that is being written to? You have seven churches that are being written to. And so this connection between the seven spirits of God, which are going to be mentioned other times throughout Revelation, and the seven churches. So what happens? It's not that seven different spirits are in each church. I hope not. Hallelujah. It is the Spirit of God that is present within the church. And so that symbolism there is simply another way to talk about the perfection, the perfect revelation, the perfect presence, the perfect care, the completed work of God in his Spirit that is present among his church. And so while this is something that is, seems normal, it's a little bit different. So I want you to see this map really quickly because I want you to, to kind of look at where it's being written. So this is a map of Paul's missionary journey, right? So you're like, wait a second, I thought we were talking about John and his revelation. I am, but I wanted you to get a picture. This is a good map that kind of shows you the old and the new. And so we're not going to follow Paul's thing. If you want this map, I can send it to you, and you can follow it there. You see the different journeys. But what I want you to notice is you'll see right over here by the G and C, and then you look down, you see Patmos right there. That's where John was when he wrote this letter. 
He was on this island when he, when, when he wrote this letter, when he got this revelation from God. And if you go to the right, you see over there where it says Asia, and you see all these different places there. What you're going to notice is you're going to see you're going to see Ephesus, you're going to see Sardis. You're going you probably can't see that, but anyway, it's there, right, right under Asia, right. And you have Philadelphia, and you have the um, Laodicea. So you have all of these seven churches there. What I want you to notice is if you could, and I, you can't, but if you look right over here where it says Caria, you'll notice Colossae is right there. Look at how, and, and, and you can kind of kind of see that a little bit, but you'll see that Laodicea and Colossae are there. Now, the reason why I point this out is because there is more than seven churches in this area. The apostle Paul has preached, and yet John chooses only these seven that he is preaching this message to or proclaiming it to. Why? Again, this number seven symbolizes completion. But this, this apostle is there, and he is saying that I'm speaking to the whole church. Now, I'm going to specify something to these churches, and what is understood is that John was the pastor or the overseer of those particular churches. And he was kicked out and sent into, into exile into the island of Patmos there. And that's where God, God gives him this revelation. And so the apostle John's greeting reminds us of Jesus' splendor, does it not? It points us to the splendor of Christ. It also does what? It shows us his mercy toward us, right? Because look what it says. Go back. Just look with me quickly here. In verse, uh, in verse 5, and it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful, the, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him, now check it out, now that's him, that's his glory and majesty, but then it says, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sin in his own blood. You heard Minister Hector as he was talking this morning about how we have been washed. He gave the analogy. I'm like, praise the Lord. I don't even need to make up an analogy. We have a perfect analogy and Ezra and him and his love. And so it's this beautiful picture and reminder that we have been washed in the blood of Jesus. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But not only have been washed, but we have been made, verse 6, kings and priests to his God and Father. Wait a second. That means that we, as children of God, have authority. If you're a child of God, this should excite you. You are given authority as kings, not like, you know, reigning, like you're going to go, hey, hey, I'm a king. I need a, a seat in the White House. Not, not that kind of king, all right? Not that. That's not what I'm talking about. But you have been given a certain spiritual position and authority in the kingdom and priest. And so priests do what? They intercede. They make prayers. When you, again, you got to think about what these people are hearing. These people are Jewish, right? And they're hearing this. You know, uh, they have Jewish backgrounds at minimum, and they're hearing this. And we're saying, wait a second, there's, there's high priests, and Jesus is, and, and John is saying, Jesus has made you kings and priests. He's changed the position. Again, the veil has been torn. And so we see in Revelation this beautiful reminder of who we are because of what Christ has done for us. And look what it says in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Listen, everybody, the dead as well as the living are going to rise and they're going to see him. And so those who literally and physically pierced him will see him. And all the tribes of the earth, look at this, will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. 
So this is not just some cute picture, right, of Jesus coming and, hey, we're going to have a good kumbaya. No, 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 that's not what's happening here. They're going to mourn because they are rebellious against God. And so that's why our mission as believers is so important because if Jesus returns now, and the people on this earth who are in rebellion against him encounter him. It's not going to be a happy encounter. It's not going to be a beautiful reunion with their Savior. It is going to be a moment of judgment likened to nothing that we have ever seen. It's a revelation while it encourages our faith. For those who do not have faith in Jesus, this is not a happy moment. This is a scary moment. This is a moment that they are not looking for because they want to live their life and do what they want to do. They have plans, and Jesus, oh, when he comes and the rebels encounter him, it's not going to be a pretty day. And so we are reminded of the judgment of Jesus. I told you this is going to be my longest point, point three. I'm going to go over the time. I just want you to have four minutes and 13 seconds. That is not going to happen especially if you're going to get any kind of edification out of this. But say this with me. Say, Revelation, Revelation. Is, all about is all about the glory of Jesus, glory of Jesus. And, and his relationship, his relationship with, his people. with his people. Revelation is about the glory of Jesus and his relationship with his people. The Apostle John, we look at verse 9 and look at what he says in verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to notice this because the apostle John relates to and says that he is a fellow partaker of three things. He said a partaker of tribulation, of the kingdom, and of the patience or the perseverance of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to notice this because this is why I don't hold to a pre-rapture position. Listen, I hope I'm wrong. Hear me when I say this. If there is one thing that I hope that I'm wrong about in the Bible is that we are going to be raptured before the tribulation. I hope I'm wrong. But if I'm not wrong, you're going to thank me. If I am not wrong, you are going to be grateful when tribulation comes if you're still alive and you'll be like, well, my bishop prepared me. Hallelujah. He let me know that this was going to happen. He didn't, he didn't give me a message and say, listen, I could be wrong, but I'm going to take my chances on the side where John, where John says I'm a partaker of tribulation. I want you to notice this. Tribulation is assumed to be the common experience for those who are in Jesus rather than something believers ought to escape. Let me say that again. Tribulation is assumed to be the common experience of those who are in Jesus rather than something believers are to escape. That's why, Paul, that, that's why John writes to the church this letter because Jesus is inspiring him to encourage those who are alive, who are going through persecution. Emperor, uh, uh, the Roman emperor Domitian, he was the emperor from 81 AD to 96 AD. And he, he called himself Savior and Lord, claiming divine worship of the Romans. And so what we believe is that this book was written around 90 to 95 A.D. during his reign. 
He hated Christians because they worshiped Jesus as Savior and Lord. Remember the book of Romans? Remember what, they, what Paul says in Romans chapter 10? That you are to believe in your heart, right? That you are to believe that Christ raised, within, raised him from the dead. That you are to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What was that about? It was because you had a choice. You could either call the Roman emperor and whoever, the Caesars, you could call them your savior and Lord, or you could declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord and savior. And so because of this, because, and John makes it clear, he is sent to Patmos for preaching the gospel, for being a declarant of the word of God so this Domitian, he persecuted the church, sending John away. Potentially, that's the reason if you take that position as far as the time, which I do, that I think that, that, that the book of Revelation is written at this time. So the revelation of Jesus, and we're going to walk through this as, as quickly as we can, but I want us to see this. And, and after this point, we'll wrap up in prayer and communion. The revelation of Jesus to the apostle is filled with symbolism. So I want you to look at this revelation. I, John, he tells you this, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, so that would have been a Sunday. The church at that time, they worshiped on Sundays as a sign. One of the days was, was a sign of resurrection. And so they worship at, on that day, and, and he's there in the spirit by himself. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. A loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven lamps. Now, just pause with me, because we see again, he makes it clear that he is writing to these seven churches. The voice of Jesus just, I mean, I, I wish that there was a way that I could convey this, but if you could just imagine in the loudest sense, a trumpet sounding and words combined with that, right? Like we typically don't hear, hear the two, right? Like when someone plays an instrument, they're playing an instrument. No matter how much they can make that instrument speak, and you know what I mean, like someone can get up there, you know, you'll see Minister Hector or someone who they start playing a song and you can actually hear the words because they're playing the melody so beautifully, right? But still in all, those aren't actual words. But what John is saying is that he hears this sound of this trumpet blast and these words coming, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so this roaring sound is coming to John. And he is moved by these words where, where Jesus says, and write these words to the seven churches. And this trumpet is blasting. And what does John do? What anyone would do. They would turn to see, wait, where is this come? Let me see. This sounds overwhelming. Let me turn to this. Some of you are like, I wouldn't turn. I would run. Hallelujah. But John is caught up in that moment and he turns to, to look away or he turns to look at this and what does he see? He said, then I turned to see the voice, which is a funny way to say that. He was turning to see who was speaking and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And so those golden lampstands, the first thing we see is the location of Jesus. The first picture of Jesus we see in Revelation, this is so important, church. 
The first picture we see is what? I see the seven lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. We're going to find out later on in, in, in this chapter that those seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So the first place we see Jesus is where? We see him among the church. We don't just see a picture of him sitting on a throne. That's going to happen. But we see him in the midst of the church, which lets us know what? He's in our midst. He's not, so, he's, he, he's not some far away, you know, land where you'll be there. No, no, yeah, that's true. But he is here right now. He is walking among the church, the body of Christ right now in this earth. So we see his location. It says that it is like the son of man. So that is the shape that we see Jesus, the form that he takes. And what he does is he's identifying Jesus with what? Jesus often called himself the son of man in the gospel of John, which would be him confirming this is the same son of man. But if you, if you read your Bible, you can. You can write this down. The book of Daniel chapter 7, 13 is a, is a revelation of one like the Son of Man. You saw that. You see that throughout the, uh, the, the book of Daniel as well. And so Jesus, again, he was pre-incarnate there and he is post-incarnate here. And we see the, the, the revelation of the Son of Man. He goes on to say this, the, the, the clothing that he was wearing. Look what it says. It says, and on like, like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about with the chest with a golden band. So what does this show us about him? This does for us, it shows his appearance as like a high priest. If you go back and you look at what the attire was, the clothing that the high priest wore in the book of Exodus chapter 39, you'll see this picture. So we're, we're, we're seeing the symbolism of Jesus being the high priest who continues to stand before the throne of God on behalf of the people of God. So we see this beautiful picture. Of, of his high priestly role. In verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. I'm going to read this whole thing and then we'll unpack it. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And so what do we see here? We see, first of all, that he had hair that was white like wool. Now, I need, I need to make this clear because in, in, in our day and age, people take scriptures and they tear them out of their context. I want you to understand that this is not to try to give us a picture of was Jesus a specific ethnicity. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. This is a picture of, it says what? White like wool. This is not about texture. This is about color. This is about appearance is what he is saying. It, this is what they would have understood. This is what he is seeing. And here's what I want you to get is when you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll see the same picture of Jesus back then. This same picture. And so we have this white, this wool like, this white like wool hair that is white as snow. He is describing it for us. In, ancient, in the ancient world, white hair symbolized what? It symbolized respect. It symbolized wisdom. You look at the book of Proverbs, it says what? It says the glory of the young man is his strength. The glory of the old man is his gray hair. Hallelujah. I don't have none. I guess I'm losing glory. That's it, right? Could be hair on the face. I got a couple there. Just a couple. But the reality is that this is dealing with what? Potentially. Now, this is, now I'm, I'm going to say this clearly. I think that this conveys what God is trying to communicate to us about Jesus. 
And this is talking about his wisdom, which would be his omniscience in theological terms. That he is, that, that he is all wise. You get that? He is wise. He is wisdom incarnate. He is all wise. Goes on to say, not only that, but then it also says that he is like this, 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 this um, he appears like a blazing, blazing in the fire. His eyes are like a blazing fire. What does the scripture say in the book of Hebrews? It says that our God is a consuming fire. What does fire do? In scripture, fire purifies. And when we're looking at the eyes of Jesus being like fire, you ever had somebody who like looks through you? Very intimidating, right? So just amplify that by like a bazillion. Eyes like fire. Penetrating eyes of judgment. Not only is he omniscient, but he is also omnipresent. He is walking amongst us in the earth. He is here. He is looking into our hearts. He is seeing what is going on in our lives. He is penetrating the depth of our soul. He knows what is going on. Church, this is a fearful picture of the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God. Listen, he is an all-consuming fire. John is getting this picture of this God that is looking at us with eyes of love, but eyes of judgment as well. He is judging the thoughts and intents of our hearts. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. And notice he connects the furnace, right? Judgment, furnace, fire, consuming. He is there. It looked kind of crazy if somebody was like standing in a furnace, I don't know, to me, and they were just like pale. It, it would just, that'd be nuts because it'd be like, were they really there? The point is that he is the consuming fire. And so if the hair is talking about his omniscience and his eyes are talking about his omnipresence, then his feet like brass would be talking about his omnipotence. He is almighty God. The, the book of Psalm tells us what? That God is going, to, one of the messianic Psalms tells us that God is going to put his enemies under his feet. Kings in those days would put their feet on the necks of their enemies so they would see that they were defeated. And, but what God is doing here is showing us our God is all-knowing. Our God is all-powerful and all-present as well. And then his voice, verse 10, tells us, Jesus' voice in verse 10, it's compared to the trumpet that I just talked about. But the next comparison is it goes from sounding like a trumpet to the sound of rushing waters, a sound that can't be ignored. You ever been in the beach? Anybody ever been in the beach and you're standing in the ocean and someone's trying to talk to you from the shore? Ever, ever had that happen? Or have you ever been the frustrated person talking to someone like, can't you hear me? Come over here, come here. You know, like, and you, you end up like becoming a pantomime out there, right? Like, I remember being a kid in the ocean. I don't know how this happens. I mean, I don't know how this happens, but at that time, it seemed like we would start here, and within moments, we were like way over there somewhere, right? And, and my parents, they're scared. I realize this now. Me, I'm having fun. I'm like, this is great, amazing. I'm fighting waves and doing all that good stuff, and yet they're communicating, move back over here. I can't hear anything they're saying, but I see them. It's loud, right? The ocean is loud. So think about that, that, that sound of rushing water. Again, his voice sounds like this. And then it tells us what? It tells us that in his hand, in his hand, there are these stars. Verse 16, look at it. He had in his right hand seven stars, 
Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, I want you to see this. He had these in his right hand, these seven stars. These seven stars, some people believe that these, these seven stars are clearly, we'll see this later on, that they are messengers. Some people think that these are guardian angels over churches. There's no New Testament scripture or any uh, scriptures really that would support that idea, right, that churches had a guardian angel. And let me just say this, and I'll repeat this again when I, when I start talking about to the angel of the church. The way that the revelation came, and I do apologize for going over. There's a lot of ground to cover, but we're almost done. But the way that the revelation came was through God, was from God to Jesus, through an angel, to John, to the church. There is never a moment where I see in Scripture that God tells people to tell angels to then go tell people. doesn't happen that way. So when you think about John conveying this message to the angels or the messengers of the church, it would seem to make sense that it would be pastors. Nonetheless, what does it say? He says that these seven stars, these seven shepherds, these seven messengers are where? They're in the right hand. God has his people in his hand. He goes on and he, and he says this, and this is why this is so important. Like when you look at all this other stuff, you look at, you know, all of the symbolism, you have to take it. It's, it's either all literal or there's figurative language here. And when you look at this next part about the sword coming out of his mouth, let me ask you a question. How many of you would take that literal? Like that's literal, like, like, like that's literal for what? It's literal in his vision. But is that something that would be literal, that would make any kind of sense? Like you think Jesus is going to walk? Maybe, I don't know. That he's just going to walk around with this huge sword coming out of his mouth? I don't, I don't think so. I think there's a picture of him being judge, of him executing judgment on the wicked as this two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. And then it goes on to say in verse, or in that verse it continues on, and it says, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Like the sun shining in its strength. Now, I know as adults, we don't do this. At least I think. But I remember being a kid and me learning somewhere, don't look at the sun because you're going to be blind. Now, let me, let, let, let's just see how many of us are alike. How many of you, when you were a kid, always try to look at the sun and just look directly at it? Anybody try to do that, right? Like, I'm going to do, I'm going to win this battle, right? Like, I'm looking, I'm like, oh, I can't. You know, we got these lights up here that are pretty bright, right? Nothing compared to the sun. You know, you walk away and your eyes are, you can't see any because you're being blinded. Don't even realize it. So just think about that. This is what John saw. This glorious revelation of Jesus Christ just like he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus shined like the sun, he sees this same Christ again in his post-resurrection and ascended glory. And he sees the glory of Jesus. Jesus speaks. He affirms who he is. He affirms his power. And again, you can keep reading the text. I won't read any more. I want to wrap this up. But he affirms his power over death. He affirms his power over life. He affirms his power over all of death, life, and everything, and he declares that we're his. So here's my closing thought, not a question. When we understand who Jesus is, we'll better, we will better understand who we are, and we will live focused upon him until the end. Let's pray together.
Father, we humble our hearts before you in this moment. Jesus, we acknowledge you are God, we are not. You are the king, we are not. You are all wise, we are not. You reign and you rule and you invite us into that as your kings and your priests. And so, Lord, thank you for washing us in your blood. And, Father, I pray for anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with you, that has not submitted their heart to you. Father, may you give them repentant hearts now. May they call upon you and ask you to save them from their sin, to save them from your judgment, and to make them your child. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.